0: Welcome to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. Uh, As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support with this podcast. This week we have another character in livestock, this time from Wales. And uh, it's good to get some people on from Wales because we we haven't had that many in this series, I have to say. But uh, this one comes as a character, not only a top livestock breeder, but a TV presenter, a government advisor, an official who owns his own castle, Bernard Llewellyn. Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Hello. (laughs) And Bernard, I've got some information on you that's been... Passed on to me by your son in law, Hal Davis. And uh, hello, Hal, if you're listening. And uh, Bernard, you say as well, just explain a little bit uh, about where you are.
1: Well, I suppose I'm closest, uh, if, if you really want to know, to Swansea in actual fact. Although it's very urban, it's probably the part of Wales that people would know. We're really between Swansea and just onto the edge of the Brecon Beacon. So, if you like, north of Swansea, very rural
0: part of Wales. Okay, and, and you, your family were dairy farmers down there, I, I think, and maybe still do farm dairy well, down there in that part of the world.
1: I, I'm originally from even further west than here, in actual fact, from Pembrokeshire, and certainly there my whole upbringing evolved around dairy farming, starting off from with my grandfather milking 12 or 14 cows, which I actually did before going to school in the morning while my <laughs> father was busy, which uh, something I suspect mightn't be that acceptable now. And then eventually, when we, when Margaret and I got married, moved up here to Flandilo, bringing that sort of daily train, which is the only thing I really knew, bringing that with me. But when you come up to a thousand feet from or 400 feet above sea level, it
0: makes things an awful lot more difficult. Of course, and our listener, will we'll, some of the listeners will know, some won't, I suppose, but the, the further west you go in Wales, the more grass you get, and generally it is dairy area down in that part of the world, isn't it? It's not everybody farms dairy once you get sort of west of you, but uh, so you said you're moving a little bit higher onto on higher ground there, but uh, I believe that um, that the horses were a big thing in, in your family, uh, all of you. <laughs>
1: But my, I hope my wife isn't listening to this, but certainly they've perhaps always been a part of our, our family, either ponies and cobs or, in fact, even more expensive race horses. Um, the whole family have been involved in that sort of thing. I rode as a, an amateur jockey, as a, um, well, shall we say, in my, in my late teens and early 20s, uh, quite unsuccessfully in actual fact. But we did, I did have one or two winners in, in, in National Hunt Races.
0: Your family have been involved, I know, I think in, in would your uncle be right? Was it involved the, the in the Royal Welsh uh, show there would be one of the main men, I think, uh, in, in in the stewarding ring?
1: I, I think, you know, if you look at both the Royal Welsh and certainly the Pembrokeshire County show, you know, my whole family really have been very involved in that sort of thing. And I think it's Brian that you're referring to in the Royal Welsh, I think he was one of the main ring stewards for many, many years in actual just He was the guy with the brown bowler hat, which I think is well, some people would recognise those that have been to the to the Royal Welsh.
0: <laughs> there's a there's a few baller hats there, but a the brown baller hat probably sticks out. But a fantastic show that the Royal Welsh is, of course, with the horses and and we'll all know that. But you you're you've got a a lot of cousins there, I think. Uh, um, Bernard uh, seems to be related to half of South Wales, maybe. But uh, you've got cousins there, and one of your cousins was a was a jockey, maybe. Um, Carl, would I be I got the right one? There?
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah, Carl well he's probably one of the most infamous in fact I use that word advisedly but he is probably one of the most infamous, infamous cousins he won the national well in fact he won it i think it was probably three times but one of them was, they weren't disqualified but the, the race was abandoned but certainly he was a, a very successful national and jockey he did begin then uh, doing a bit of training as well and he still actually help, helps out um, Tristan davis as a as a, a, a he helps him in his training and he does a bit of traveling as far as some of his horses are concerned so and again we'd... it's, a, it's a, a situation where you can't get away from these horses the whole
0: time <laughs> and you're talking the grand national here are we
1: absolutely yeah yeah uh-huh. he won the grand national i say we on horse called party politics if i remember rightly and he, he also won it um when i think there was some issue with with the start or, or something went on and he won it on that occasion as well but he was very successful, you know right across the, the, the national hunt field of, of, of racing.
0: Uh, and, and another cousin, I think, um, Helen would, would be, she'd be involved in the in the Grand National <laughs> somewhere, huh?
1: Well, that was the Gold Cup, I think that was. Her father-in-law um, trained uh, the winner of the, of the Gold Cup. Certainly it was one of the few times where you just had, he was what they call a permit holder, just training a few horses. Uh, really for his own enjoyment as much as anything. And then they had this horse that was was quite successful and, and uh, um, went on, I'd say, to win the Gold Cup as, a, as an outsider. So, again, another family involvement, as you say.
0: An, an easy win. He beat he beat a horse called Desert Orchid, I believe.
1: <laughs> That's the one name that I did remember. <laughs> I mean, Desert Orchid was, you know, he was famous.
0: Know, one of the horses
1: of our time, mm-hmm. and he, I remember him being hot favourite for that for that particular race. Mm-hmm. But I, I unfortunately backed to winner at a hundred to one, which uh, <laughs> helped my financial situation, as far as horses are concerned.
0: <laughs> well, and, and and just go on to yourself and your own your own prowess, there, big man, and young farmers, I think, and, and uh, you you travel with the young farmers, uh, and um, for all a cattleman, you you got a bit of sheep shearing in there as well.
1: Well, we. I've tried all the way through to take advantage of every opportunity that I've had, uh, and young farmers have been a huge part of my life. I chaired Wales Young Farmers after spending a lot of time on the Council of, of NFYC, um, and through that met a lot of interesting people and perhaps, I suppose, honed my skills at dealing with politicians as well. I think you know, if, if I were to say to one reason why I've been able to. Well, try and novel politicians. Um, it, it really was through young farmers. Went to Canada on, on an exchange visit with them, very involved with Holstein's at, at that particular time. Uh, again, met people that uh, still have contact with even sort of, you know, over 40 years later.
0: Well, that's a brilliant thing, isn't it? And we've talked about this quite a few times on this podcast with various people that you know, on the American side and on the the UK side, where if you're involved in Young Farmers and you learn how to speak and you learn how to to sit on committees, that uh, it stands you in great stead, and and it's it's a great um, advocate for the youngsters there just to to do that. That you it gives you such a great grounding, isn't it, to talk to people.
1: Well, I think it comes home to you when you perhaps sit on committees that aren't as well managed as perhaps they should be. And you can get quite critical, in fact, of how other people share, particularly how other people share, and how other people behave in in a, a committee situation as well. For it to be effective, it's that grounding that I had from young farmers that, you know, just happened to make most of the committees that I've been certainly involved with in a very close way, try and make them as effective as you can.
0: Uh, and we'll go on to your political career in, in a minute or two, and, and, and today's political minefield, is, and we'll go on to maybe have a chat about that just now. But let's just go back there that, that I mentioned sheep shearing, and, and you did. You, you were a shearer and, and contract shearer, earning your money, earning your spurs, I suppose, uh, um, clipping sheep.
1: Well, certainly it was the first thing that, well, when we got married and moving to, up to a, a holding further up the hill, Sheep are obviously part of the equation. You know, they always had been in this particular farm. But I certainly had done nothing at all with sheep except take the wool off. And I suppose in a way that's down to necessity. It was a small dairy farm at home. Um, I wasn't terribly well paid by by my parents. And certainly going out to make some extra money was, you know, it was, I think A, it was a good learning curve. It also taught you to appreciate money. And it also learned that, you know, hard work never really killed anyone. It nearly did on a few occasions, but certainly I think that work ethic is something that, that the shearing I did did help. And also, you know, you got around, certainly around most of Pembrokeshire, um, shearing quite a lot of sheep when, when I was well, quite a bit younger now, I suppose. But it was a, a good exercise and it also, um, taught me a lot about different types of farming certainly in Pembrokeshire you know a variation from uh, very intensive arable farming, dairy farms and to the the hills of the Procelli as well where we tended to end uh, the shearing season and so Mm -hmm. whenever you go and look at that sort of thing I, I think you always learn something and also going to the same farms year after year you could see how things were developing or going the other way in actual fact. So it's it an experience
0: I get you on that and I believe you did fairly well at it because uh, a little bit tells me that you, you bought yourself a sports car out of the earnings uh, <laughs> so <laughs>
1: well, yeah I suppose that's, that's another story but I did in fact by a, a Reliance senator and um, I remember going to an NFYFC AGM and they I think it was Thomas Shields was the guy at the top at that time so again that's aging me and uh, the comment was from from the stage, a uh, reliance that has turned up. We're not sure if it's Bernard Rueli nor her royal Highness Princess Anne, because she had <laughs> one at the same time.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, um, the, the centre of the country there, Princess Anne, and Cyrencester, and, and I believe you were at Cyrencester, weren't you? For, uh, uh, you did a stint there at, as at, uh, at college, university. I'm not quite sure how it tra- trades itself these days.
1: Well, I think going from being a college to university is a bit of a left-down to me. I was always very proud that it was a college and that it was quite practical in its, its nature. I'm sure it is now, but I'm not quite sure what being a, a university actually does bring to the whole scenario of, of, of being there. Um, I, all right, perhaps it's a, a biased, old-fashioned idea, really. And to have university status obviously does something for it probably simply as far as income is concerned but it was a a, a, it was an education in many ways as far as i was concerned i did quite a lot of racing when i was there i was secretary of the of the pack of eagles when i was there in fact i i hunted them a bit as well but i think probably the most significant thing was that it it really introduced me to you know such a broad base of people who had an interest in agriculture or indeed in in estate management as well because the two courses that that were there at the time, they ran concurrently and and you met a lot of very, very different people from very, very different backgrounds uh, with very, very different ability and uh, I suppose uh, with very, very different amounts of money as well and that's always good to to broaden your horizons, isn't it?
0: that's exactly what i was going to mention that it is such a diverse amount of, diverse type of person that does go to to the uh, to mm-hmm. the rac and and uh, yeah, as you said all the different ones and and you'd all get on and you'll go there and take different things out of it from there and uh, fr- from there from your going back to the young farmer's days there that uh, you met your your wife uh, margaret i think in the in the young farmer's times and uh, that moved you on again uh, Bernard.
1: Well, it, 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 at that time, it was sort of called the marriage bureau of the countryside, wasn't it? And I think certainly, you know, that things are very different now, obviously, Anthea, You know, with, with people meeting online and this sort of thing. But that opportunity wasn't there at that time. I'm not sure whether we've advanced or, or gone backwards as far as relationships are concerned. But certainly it, it worked for us uh, and it worked for many, many other people at that time as well.
0: And 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 uh, Margaret's uh, father's family, I think, were the ones we met. I mentioned earlier on at the top of this this uh, podcast that uh, you owned a castle, and and uh, yeah, your fa- her father's family were tenants of uh, of Kennan Castle for had been for, like, for quite a while, I think.
1: Yeah, a number of generations, about four generations, where they've, they've been tenants to the quarter estate, and. Um, Eventually, my my father-in-law was offered the farm as a sitting tenant. And um, because the, the whole thing was, was part of a large estate, there were no actual individual deeds associated with this farm. And when they were drawn up, the red line went around the outside, and I suppose what he, he meant to happen was to a red line to go around the castle, which is r- virtually right in the middle of the farm. Um, and as a result of that, well, shall I say we acquired the castle.
0: <laughs> so can I just ask the Corder estates and I, is that the same quarter as in quarter Castle up in Scotland? Or would that be the a, same same family? Yes it is in Inverness.
1: Yep. same of Corder, as as mentioned in Macbeth and, and in fact they, they own quite a lot of land in this part of the world and further west in Pembrokeshire in fact. I didn't so know there was sort town. of a two mini estates. Well almost three mini estates, uh, here in Newcastle emlyn and in Pembrokeshire as well as in Scotland. Yeah, I went uh, went up to quarter castling in Scotland a number of years ago now, and uh, it was just quite interesting. A number of the people that were working there had been involved down here as well.
0: Oh, interesting, because you you may have bumped into my friend uh, David Walker, who's big into his Clydesdale horses. In fact, you know, they, they're showing Clydesdale at the World Clydesdale Show this weekend, and he farms uh-huh. a lot of Quartercastle estates. So that's that's an interesting um, yeah. combination. Uh, and but yes. let's let's go back to to this castle. As I said, it's 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 grand, and you've made it it made it so. But it's a big. Would I say derelict would be the right word? Um, tell me a little bit more about the castle, there, Bernard. Just, just carry well, down a Castle. What, what it does?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is. It is very much a ruin. I think its great advantages that that, that uh, it's it's in an amazing situation. It's very much location, 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 and uh, it sits on a hill overlooking the surrounding area, um, and. Uh, I suppose it, it, we've developed it what we'd like to think in sort of a tasteful way. We've just developed some of the buildings down on the farmyard which sits below it. Uh, and um, I suppose it, it, it's the way in which we've developed it that most people appreciate. I'd like to think anyway. Um, I, I am reminded of, of, of the child in a, in a, a drawing uh, situation when he was learning to draw things in school. And uh, this, this railway train turns up and you've always got this iconic uh, chimney in the front with the smoke coming from it. The reality is that that sort of thing is long gone, but it's still very much part of, of how people think of, of trains. And in the same way, we think of farmyards with chickens around and ducks on the pond and that sort of thing. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it's, it's good. Retaining the characters is what we've tried to do
0: okay and and uh, we'll, we'll just go on to the castle a little bit more and what you've done with it since but i mean back then you 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 would be when you took the farm over there you'd be milking still and, and back into yeah, milking course, frisians yeah. and and and, uh, and 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 competing with Frisians as well competing with your livestock anyway
1: yes well in a very small way i mean there were some very high powered herds in Carmarthenshire at that time uh, the, the, the grove herd in particular was was renowned for for frisian cattle. And, in fact, went on to do to the hostings as well afterwards. And they'd be not near neighbours, but certainly they would have been very much acquaintances. And there were several other as well, you know, around lundi too. But they tended to be milking in the valley, whereas, you know, we're at almost a thousand feet here. And I think we learned quite early that competing either with Pembrokeshire or with the Towie Valley was difficult when you know your winter was perhaps an an extra month longer really, yeah, yeah. and and g- grass was a bit slower getting
0: going. Sure, sure. I mean, it, it definitely it, uh, the geography and, and the altitude tends to to make a difference to the to the, the especially the dairy world to all livestock world, I suppose. And you ended up selling the selling the milking herd, I believe.
1: Well, most of the cows went went back to my father, in actual fact, and then we sold some off as well. He was expanding at that time back in Pembrokeshire. And um, so, as i say most of them ended up down there. But certainly, you know, it, it, it was a decision really that, that it was forced upon us both by um, the pressure the tourists were starting to put on the farm. yet. As you said, you know, a lot of dairy cows and, and tourists don't really mix that well. Sure. When you see a... A lady trying to walk through a bit of cow muck in high shoes it uh well it does make you think you know should i really be doing this
0: <laughs> and again going back to politics we won't go into that one let's uh, let's just go on then so you saw the the, the milking herd you've got a castle uh you've got a, you know, a, a family around you and uh and then you decided to go a, a change of direction and go into rare breeds maybe may, maybe from the tourists point of view i
1: think with you know Part of, of of that decision really was to add to the castle. I always think of of, of the castle as sort of the, the backstop or the or the you know the last thing that that probably would 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 fall over not so much physically but obviously as far as as a, a, a financial attribute is concerned. So no matter what we do, people are going to come here. But if if we can capitalize on that by either selling them something or keeping them here longer or getting them more interested or getting the profile of the price up, it was obviously going to be a plus. And I, oh. I suppose the, the castle made that something which wasn't quite as... as or It was an easier decision to make when people already coming to the castle. And we had, in fact, sort of tried to do a little bit before that. You know, initially it was only sort of sell, selling postcards from one of the, one of the rooms uh, as you went into the house, and then ice creams and that sort of thing. And then it developed from there. I mean, I think people use this term organically, um, but it was very much like that. As we made a bit of money, we put it back into that side of the business rather than into the agricultural side.
0: Before we go on to the the, the different types of of, uh, stock you put on the disc, go back to the castle there, there would be an upkeep to, to keep that going. I mean, I don't know... And, and what sort of state of ruin it is, but there would be an annual upkeep to, to, to maintain that financially, which would be a draw, be a drain rather.
1: I, I think with all that, particularly with scheduled monuments, it really is is about the standard that's expected by government to for the upkeep of that. And that really was a major part of our thinking initially. But what we've actually done is we, we formed a guardianship agreement in conjunction with cadu which are the equivalent to english heritage so they're they're they are a they we share the gate receipts um a percentage coming to us and a percentage going to cadu uh but in fact they're responsible for any major maintenance i think if if i analyze the money that 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 we pay in as a percentage term into into cadu every year it would probably easily pay for a Mm stonemason. but at the same time you know, if they're doing it themselves, you know, they can't complain to me that, that it isn't up to the quality they expect. And in a way, that that's only fair, you know, all right? although we actually own it, it's really just, you know, it's, it's just lent to us for the time that we're here, really. Uh, I don't think anybody can actually own something which is as significant as that. Um, to the country of Wales, really.
0: Sure. And just give us a little bit more about the castle, the sort of size of it and the age of it as well, you know, it goes back to it and and what history is behind the castle.
1: It's late 13th, early 14th century castle, so I love to tell Americans when they come it's really a very modern building compared to some. (laughs) And in fact, we we have buildings on the farm that probably predate uh, the castle itself. It's... um, I suppose that the the significant thing is that it's in quite a strange place, really, because most castles are situated where they're they're probably protecting something or they're a form of protection for it, Mm -hmm. whereas with us, we're out in the middle of nowhere. So most historians suggest that, that, that really the site has been developed from initially, in fact, a cave dwelling, which is underneath the castle itself, and certainly that may even be earlier than prehistoric because some work has been done recently and, and they keep making it or, or sus- suspecting that it was inhabited even before they originally thought. And then uh, as the cave perhaps became a, a less acceptable place to live, there was, we think, a wooden hill fort built here. And if you analyze it, it's actually a very good place for a hill fort because it commands such a huge area around it. When the old counties were in existence here, they used to say you could see seven counties from here. But it, there is a, a huge area around that, that you can see. And then, as the walls of the hill fort began to deteriorate, they were replaced with with, with stone, war, stone locally well locally quarried from just below the castle. In fact, so the whole site really is a progression from a cave dwelling. Uh, to a wooden hill fort and then the stone castle.
0: <laughs> I can see why you say it's uh, relatively modern. We're talking probably two, three thousand years, in, uh, well, and behind that, well, what well, sort of size are we looking at, Bernard? What
1: you'd probably get about seventy cows inside it. That sort of building size. It's, okay. it's, it's quite an involved building. Uh, what they've got outer wards to it as well, which would have been the first defence of it. Although. It's difficult to really make a, an argument why it needed to be defended, but uh, certainly it, it's uh, I say quite a sophisticatedly designed um, building, although in actual fact if you to look at it as sort of from a, a drone or something, it is it's a series of squares and then you have to put it together to see how it's designed to, to be defended.
0: Okay, just we'll carry on with that before we go on to a livestock podcast is what we we run here. We'll talk about the livestock in a second, but just just carry on through that that you developed uh, you know various things around that to make it a tourist attraction that it is now, and you've got tea rooms and and, and various other things, and you get a a lot of visitors. I think.
1: Yeah, we we get about eighty thousand visitors a year. Okay. Some of them that that we can take a bit of money off, and some of them we don't take as much off. Um, <laughs> But certainly, you know, we, we've done, re- well, we still do wedding receptions here. We used to do the whole thing uh, with the wedding breakfast as well. And we offered them a, a huge choice of me- menu. They either had long beef, long horn beef, or they could have long horn beef. And if they didn't want that, they could go somewhere else. Perhaps an attitude that not, not every re- retailer is able to, to adopt. But it's just part of the principle why we did it anyway. So, sure. you know, you have to stick to your guns.
0: Sure, sure, and then, yeah, that's brilliant that you have that. And we mentioned the rare breeds, and as I said, uh, as a livestock podcast, you you've had uh, Soe sheep, I think, and Baldwin sheep, and Welsh Black sheep. But I mean, it's the, the the Longhorns probably the main one. But just talk us through the other animals that you you had there before you got into the Longhorns, or maybe at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, I I think it was almost by accident. In fact, one of your previous contributors, um, Peter Close, uh, we went to the rare breeds sale up in Stoney. I don't know how many years ago. And we bought, you know, a Noah's Ark, really, of of different cattle and and sheep and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And really, I think, you know, what we found was what we got on with best and, you know, what what, that's what stayed the course. And longhorns are, are very much part of that. And I think, you know, it was down to several reasons, I suppose, as much as anything. They just suited this farm to a certain extent. They were very attractive and we've we, we done a lot of work over the years in what they call dressing film sets where we supply animals to go on with interior dramas and that sort of thing. And in the same way that they were acceptable within that, I think they're acceptable to, to the punters that, that come here as well. I think we perhaps over overestimate uh, uh, the knowledge of, of, of people who live outside the countryside. You know, urban dwellers tend to have well, it's something with horns, so it must be a bull, that sort of idea. <laughs> so we've tried to keep something which which is attractive enough to be different, and yet at the same time, you know, producers have de- decent beef, and and be relatively
0: easy to manage and let's go we'll go on to the to the prowess that you've that you've gone on with uh, long on since that days when when you spoke to peter close but uh, uh i've mentioned the soya sheep and and so oh, rather yeah. and 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 ballwinds my mother kept baldwins for a while they were buggers to difficult things to breed and you had welsh welsh <laughs> blacks and 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 uh, didn't fire white park or did that the, 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 the,
1: yeah, the w- White Park had a lot of those, which are now quite rare, in fact, mm. uh, certainly compared to long ones. Uh, we had Dineva was one of the places where two or three White Park herds were. Well, they were the only ones that were remaining, really. And uh, is, I think, is the basis for most of the White Park herd book at, at the moment. Okay. We had some of those originally. But we actually sold them back to the National Trust, which seemed to be quite a good idea at the time.
0: As you said, you had you had a number of <laughs> a zoo there of of, of, of uh, oh, yeah. rare, rare breeds for a while, and and uh, and then focused on on rare breeds that would be attractive to your to your visitors and, and, and punters, if you like, coming in through the gate, yeah. but also something that would make you money, and that's kind of where you, where the long started to to grow themselves financially.
1: Well, I I think whenever you diversify into anything, you have to have a very open mind
0: about how you do treat it.
1: And certainly, you know, if there's an opportunity there to set to sell what you're producing, that's all, all, all obviously going to be central, really, to your to your choice of animal. Sure. You know, the the were lovely, and, and and they they really did look good up on the castle because it's it's a high mound, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. and these little brown things running about there that most people thought were goats, anyway. <laughs> um, was and you know. It, 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 they weren't the most productive of things, although in actual fact, they do produce more milk per kilo of body weight than any other sheep, as I understand.
0: Is it. that right? Well, that's a fact. Well, that's, that's, a a fact. Fact. that's
1: what I've been told, anyway. <laughs> yeah. but, but certainly, you know, getting half decent carcass out of them wasn't easy. We had a resort to uh, uh, selling them to a few restaurants, and I'm told, I, I don't know for a fact, that they used to pass it off as venison in actual fact. <laughs> You hang it for long enough, and anything that tastes like
0: venison, I suppose. That's true enough, and as you said, they're not the biggest, and not the easiest to farm and catch either. I mean, the wild little buggers that they are. They're not native for your part of the world, of course. They're native to the oh, no, no. to the north of Scotland, but they they can be some some uh, um, flighty little buggers, to to say well, the least. They
1: don't flock either. That's that's the significant thing. They all run off in different directions. So
0: you can have a damn good dog to do anything with them. <laughs> we'll go on to go on to your your prowess with the dogs in a minute too. But let's talk about oh, the, let's talk about the 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 Longhorns then. And and I believe that uh, Peter Close, as you said, has been on this podcast before, and and, and a friend of mine, uh, you and he, had a little bit of a a, a bet or a challenge that uh, you guys could could be the top guys in in the breed, and and you have.
1: Well, I. You know, there are a number of, of very good herds in the breed now.
0: Some people who spent a lot
1: of money and some people like me who spent very little. But in actual fact, you know, I, I suppose we, we could be considered to be amongst the top anyway. I think the important thing was that both of us came from very much an agricultural background. Whereas, in fact, there were a lot of, of Longhorn breeders that were either perhaps, I mean, slightly unkind, but landed gentry with the and this sort of thing. And they were perhaps more concerned about horn shape than they were about confirmation. Whereas, you know, I think particularly the farmers that are involved in it now, you know, I I came up through the young farmers' stock judging scenario. And, and, you know, I'd like to think I've got a fair idea about confirmation. And I think it does show that over the years, and I'm sure particularly a lot of interbreed judges would agree, that we have developed the breed in a way which is appropriate perhaps to to modern day needs rather than worrying about having black tips to the horn which would affect that horn when it was used as a a substitute for glass in lanterns. It's hardly that relevant these days and also again as I say about the shape of the horns um, certainly I've adopted the idea that bonnet horns which, which come in closer to the face just make them slightly easier to manage as much as anything but not really that critical, as far as the either the carcass or the conformation is
0: concerned. That's a classic remark that, that I've heard happen in, in the Scottish blackface sheep as well, where they want to turn the horns out, but the ones turned in make them easier to manage too. Uh, but going on with those longhorns, you went on to become one of the of the top breeders in amongst it. And, and as you said, it's it's moving away maybe from the uh, hobby farmers there to taking this job seriously. And, and seriously, you did.
1: Well, I I think also they were originally developed for, for a tri-purpose as both draft animals for milk and for beef, and in fact probably as much as anything for for the fat to to light like London. That was what Bakewell is supposedly supposed to have developed. But I you know I think they very much do have a place. I'm convinced of that. As I think do all native breeds at the moment. Um, you know we're going down this climate change road and and. We're going to be criticized if we, if we're not seen to be, to me, making an attempt at, at utilizing grass, which can also sequestrate carbon. So in a way that they, they, suit my purpose ideally because they're attractive. They're very kind, um, docile animals. They, I've got two or three footpaths that are very, very well used running through the farm, particularly close to the castle. And obviously keeping them close to the castle, they achieve their objective of, of just well, what we call it about uh, uh, sorting out the set and and dressing it and just, it's a case of, well, can we go to the castle where the funny cows are? And I I don't mind people calling them funny cows as long as they come.
0: Well, that's brilliant. And as you said, some of them see them with horns and think they're bulls. And people that learn that they can walk amongst them, then uh, it it does good for the livestock industry. Maybe everybody needs to know that... uh, Obviously, you you do take your care when you walk, walk amongst uh, cattle and, uh, and bulls and such like. But, I mean, it's great to think that you're educating people that uh, you, you can be in amongst these things. And let's go back to, I mentioned earlier on that uh, you had a challenge, I think, with Peter Close. And Peter, if you're listening, <laughs> hello there. You've uh, you've had your say on this one, so Bernard's going to come back to you. But uh, you guys had a little bit of a bet, I think, uh, going back the way as to uh, who could be the best breeder of these, these uh, Longhorns. And uh, I, I think that's a challenge that's been... Uh, uh, both of you have, have, have won a little bit off.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, we, we we've, in the auction ring, perhaps we've done slightly better than, than most other breeders have. In kind of, well, in fact, uh, recently that, that, that's that been topped as well. But certainly we've, we've sold a number of bulls that rate amongst the most expensive bought at auction. And it's still not big money compared to the limbs and the Charolais and that sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, our course are not as high either. You know, they they don't guzzle food in the same way that some of these continentals do. But certainly I would never dream of suggesting that uh, I could even compete with Peter as far as this sort of master breeder idea is concerned because his experience. And the fact that what he is able to do is he, he's able to sell his best and still keep his best, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> he's, he's, he's quite clever at doing that. And, you know, we've only really sold... You know, so bulls um, successfully, or we've had half decent money for females as well. But certainly bulls is what we seem to do well. And I think that really is down to depth of breeding. I think perhaps people probably keep bulls because they think, oh, this one has come and it's okay. But if, if mum is is pretty rough, it's, it's a pretty dangerous thing to do to, to keep a bull out of a poor quality cow. <laughs> um Certainly, you know, I think, well, it's obviously it's the same as far well as all livestock is concerned. The greater depth you've got, you miss the occasional page, but at the same time, most of the time, that's that reliability in the depth of
0: breeding will always come back of course of course the, the wise words and words we've heard from a lot of breeders but it's great to hear it from from some of the older breeds as well uh, that, that, that there's you know the general uh, rule of genetics always rings true and let's go back to this bet there I believe and I'm, maybe I've been told this from the third party you might get but uh, you and he had a bet that who could win the the, the, the three mainland royal shows in, in one year yeah. and uh, I'm not quite sure how that finished up.
1: Well, I, I got very close, shall you say. I got beaten in the, in the Royal by um, by a bull. Well, anyway, I got beaten, and that's, it's as it's it's close as that. But certainly, I suppose to sort of recompense, recompense that, Peter in, 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 and with another two others, actually bought the bull off me afterwards. So in a way, whether I won the bet or not is irrelevant. I was probably the major winner at first, the finance was
0: concerned in any case so you you won I believe in two thousand and four I think the year was That's you right. w- you won yeah. the champion at the Highland mm-hmm. and the royal and then uh, and uh, and you just got pipped at the royal Welsh, and I've had that same thing yeah. this year to be fair with my when she, I won I managed to win the win win the the highland and the and the Yorkshire and then got pipped at the royal Welsh. and in your oh, home yeah. in your home country, that hurts a little bit, but uh, as you said, right. um, Peter Close went on to buy the ball yep.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it does hurt, but I think it is also important for showing. I think that's the great thing about it is that you know it really is only one man or one woman's opinion, and if it didn't change, if it ended up the same way every time, it would be a pretty poor show, and I think we'd soon stop, wouldn't we?
0: Well, that's so- true, and and a man or woman has to have the balls to put you down if they don't th- if your, your animal's gone on too long, or maybe it's gone a bit stayed, or maybe it, didn't, it was beaten by a better animal. That's the way that showing goes.
1: Absolutely. Or or perhaps this lack of knowledge on part of the judge.
0: <laughs> I should edit that out, but I won't. We'll carry on. And the bull was sold I think for for a, a record price to Peter Cliffs. It
1: was a, it, it was a record at that time. I think it's about eight and a half or nine times and something like that. Eight
0: thousand um, four hundred I have written down, so that's they are there we are. <laughs> and a record These at that time literature. which I think still stands, would <laughs> I be right, still stands to this day but for it, a male it, anyway. It,
1: Still censorable. for a bull, A cow did make about twelve thousand um, earlier on this year, in actual okay. fact, or end of
0: last year. Yeah. So a breed is still on the go, as we mentioned. You mentioned earlier on, well, and, yeah. and we've had a podcast previously on the on the longhorns, and they're still on the up, and the prices are still there. But uh, congratulations on still holding the the breed record, uh, anyway. And at the same time, I think you sold heifers for, for decent money as well. Three thousand was a breed record, I think, when you broke it. Yeah. Uh, when that was.
1: Yeah, I think I think perhaps that's the most important thing about yeah. any breeder of, of any significance, really, is that you know you, you need a certain amount of uniformity within your herd, and that really should bring consistency as far as the marketplace is concerned as well. I mean, now the interesting thing is that probably a lot of these cattle are worth more in boxes than they are worth to, 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 to breeders, um, and 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 in a way that's a good thing because. We've always actually killed about 10% of our females and virtually 80 or even 90% of our bulls because I think it is retaining that quality and only, what do they say, breed the best, feed the best, and hope for the best, isn't it? It, <laughs> it, it, it is that idea that you, know, you should be perhaps more critical no matter where you are in the chain, whether you're a top breeder or just beginning, it is important that you try and retain that quality as, as best you can all the way through.
0: Certainly, right. It
1: is, yeah, It is a mistake, I think, that a lot of people make reading anything is, is to think that everything is good just because it's, its mum was good then.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and you, we see that time and again, and especially in the, I wouldn't say, minority isn't quite the right word, but in the smaller breeds where everybody thinks that everybody's gonna buy you know, everything that we've got out of it. And there has to be a you know, a bottom end, but it's not just a bottom end, is it? Because if you're, if you're killing these animals, as you mentioned, they're worth more in a box. And I mean, there are a lot of people now that are, that are supplying you know, longhorn beef or, or special, specialist uh, minority breeds, uh, beef out there and and lamb, does that matter, to the general public. And uh, and as you said, you can charge a premium for that. Are you doing a bit of that yourself?
1: We've done it for about, oh, almost 20 years, I think. I mean, we we get people here that that drive from Bristol, which will be about an hour and a half drive from us, and just to pick up a box of beef, you know, and I think that sort of thing does say that, that you are producing a premium product and that there is demand for it. What I found very interesting is, is, is the most significant thing about all those customers that we've had for many years, um, driving from wherever, they can all cook. And I think that really is an important part of it. No matter how good a quality you produce, as far as the, the, the whether it be beef or lamb or anything else, selling it into a niche market, that'll never work if the board the other side doesn't know how to utilize it then. I do my bit. I try and feed them right. I try and make sure that they're slaughtered right, they're hung correctly, and and the carcasses are cut up as they should be. Again,
0: that's a very important part of it. That's, but if the board buying it can't cook, you know, you're on average to nothing to be honest. That's very, very true. There, Bernard, a friend of mine, uh, um, Donald McPherson who remember him doing his Nuffield Scholarship at the time, and Donald runs a successful uh, um, beef supply business in Scotland, and he said there's seven parts to producing a, you know, a steak on the plate, and the, and the very last mm-hmm. one is the guy that cooks it, and that's that's yeah. very that's very true. So, and and let's move on to to your well you you're you're a committee man that's not the word a council man in 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 various ways and you were on the longhorn council i think for a a quite a long period of time and you would have done your share of of promoting that breed and and keeping it from the taking it from the minority breed or or off the rare breed list i think it is now to to where it is now
1: yeah we're now called a minority breed or uh... It depends which shows you go to. Sometimes you can sort of sneak into the, the back door to some of these classes that are not open to everyone. So there are pluses as far as that's concerned. But I think referring it to as a rare breed is, well, it, it's probably always been a mistake in actual fact because, you know, the numbers of cattle have been there. The numbers of registered cattle, you know, there is quite a deficiency between those cattle that are registered and, and the long ones that are around. And a lot of people are obviously capitalizing on this niche market scenario. But certainly, you know, I, 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 I've always felt that really they should be given some consideration in a way horns were a disadvantage as far as that was concerned because a lot of commercial breeders, they were, they were an issue. Well, now in actual fact, we're allowed to sell um, or allowed to, to show cattle that have been disbudded. And not something that I have to say I actually agreed with because, well, for me, a longhorn without horns, you know, it's quite difficult to accept it. But I, on the other hand, I can certainly understand why commercial farmers work would want to have these horns off. And indeed, I, you know, we've sold quite a lot of cattle that have gone on to, to, to do various things to be crossed with, particularly with things like blues, um, which probably gives you a, an almost perfect carcass in actual fact, because they pop popped these calves out very easily compared to a lot of other breeds. And certainly the, the fact that they haven't been messed around with as far as the, the, certainly the bone structure is concerned makes them quite an easy animal to manage. And more recently, you know, we've sold a couple of bulls into genus and uh, those bulls have been used on dairy cows. And really what's coming back from that is that, you know, these calves are very thrifty. They're on their feet. And they're trying to do something, you know, trying to to make their way in in the world very quickly. And really, if you analyze it, you know, dairy farmers in particular are under so much pressure these days as far as staffing is concerned. Having a good, bright, sharp calf getting up is probably as important as anything.
0: Sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and, and uh, as you said, the Longhorn doesn't necessarily have to have a Longhorn, but it has the quality of all that, and going back a long time, of course, it, I mean, the Longhorn will be probably older than your than your own castle there, in, in, uh, in, absolutely. Yeah. in, in terms of where it started, and let's just go on to do what else, because you're a man that does get involved in a few things, and I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on, that uh, you know, I think at the top of the podcast here, that uh, you, you're a politician and an advisor, and, and you've been an NFU delegate in Brussels and uh, that that is something politics at the moment are on, on the agenda but let's just let me let me know a little bit more about uh, what you were doing in Brussels.
1: Well I think as you say um, it was a, a, a committee that really was about the environment as much as anything and not something that certainly a lot of farmers would be prepared to, to get involved in certainly you know I suppose almost 20 years ago when I first got involved But really, I think, you know, we have an obligation almost, certainly those of us that are able to communicate a a message and express ourselves to get as involved with with politicians as as best we can, really. Uh, I think it might be fair to say that an awful lot of farmers wouldn't want to go down that road. So I think if you you feel that you have the ability or at least probably that the, the... What's the word I'm looking for? The patience, really, to, to to put up with politicians because they have to be dealt with, whether we like what they say or what they don't say. And certainly at a European level, uh, the meetings I used to go, it was, it was called the Agriculture and the Environment uh, Working Group within the commission itself. And it used to be sort of a, a two or even a three-day meeting and the most difficult day would be the would be the first day, probably, when as farmers, as as part of the European Union, we, we all got together. And actually deciding on our plan of attack from that meeting was probably more of a problem than it was when we were actually w- in with the Commission. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think that's perhaps the story of farmers, isn't it? Yeah. You know, everyone's got their different views uh, around the world. And certainly... I, I felt that we were gold-plating an awful lot of rules from Europe when when I was there in particular, and certainly a lot of other countries got away with a huge amount that that we wouldn't have got away with here, and perhaps uh, that perhaps affected my 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 thoughts about you know Brexit and, and and other things as well, but certainly it was something I think any farmer that feels they have the ability. Well, even if they don't feel they have the ability, if they have the inclination to do it, you know, it's about a, a willing volunteer, isn't it?
0: So you uh, you would be an elected, by the local uh, NFU, you would, you would be the elected body to go there and talk for them, it, uh, against Europe, yeah. is that right, or at Europe?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I was elected initially at the county level to go on NFU council, uh, and in fact, I, I, I didn't do that much time on council, but I did attend, well, what was then the, the, I think, land use and something of a committee, it was called. But it was what, what now is Rural Affairs. And um, as as a representative of Wales on that, in actual fact, I was then elected to, to go to Europe and, okay. and try and knock some sense into some of these politicians <laughs> that don't know an awful lot about agriculture. <laughs> and also also interesting to, to work with environmental NGOs as well that had come from all over Europe and that in itself was a an interesting scenario that i, I carried on since in fact because again a lot of people don't like working with environmental NGOs in particular people like the RSVP and the Wildlife Trusts and this sort of thing but again you know you really have to get involved with these people if you're going to have any effect on what they're doing and certainly uh, I suppose to 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 be aware of the way they're thinking rather than just the way you think yourself.
0: And and then you take some of that back, I guess, for, from. I mean, I know you're involved in the in the Brecon Beacons National Park now, which is again a fantastic thing. And I think you're advisor in there and the Forestry Commission and various things. And you would have taken some of that back, maybe from Europe, to, from talking to some of the other guys that, that were in in other parts of of Europe to bring the to bring their stuff back in, as well as as, as pitching your own your own uh, oh,
1: advice very much so i think as i said earlier on if you go anywhere you don't learn from that and and there's, there's always going to be something there which is a, a positive as far as they're concerned uh you know europe is a very very diverse part of the of, of, of the world uh and you know probably as diverse as any other continent in actual fact and and but at the same time really a lot of the problems are exactly the same in spain or in Italy, that that they are here, but they're just sort of slightly slanted in a slightly different way there.
0: Uh-huh. And 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 so as I said, you're you're a, so you're an ambassador, I suppose, for you know, an, an advisory panel. I think for 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 the Forestry Commission and uh, the National Resources of Wales, and and uh, uh, you're a man that's making a difference in 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 amongst the the, the Welsh country.
1: I, th- I think my son-in-law has been quite wild in his. It is uh, what he suggested I'm able to do. I think you just keep You just keep. sometimes knocking your head against the wall, but I think you dare not stop. Or at least I, I've always felt that. I don't do as much now as I used to do. I'm on the wrong side of 70, and I think it is very much you know people who are really in touch with what's going on to, to carry this on. I still do. I've been to a meeting tonight. But at the same time, perhaps having that experience of seeing what does go on in other parts of 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 Europe in, in particular, you know, does give you a slight advantage when it comes to, we've got a, a new scheme th- coming through now for, for Welsh agriculture, which is going to be very demanding on some farmers. It's, it's a very ambitious scheme. Uh, and I just wonder how much of it is going to be taken up. But governments tend to operate like that. It, it, it's an environmentally based scheme. It's going to put huge pressure on, on production. But it's, it's the way you know, it's the way politicians are thinking. Climate change is, is 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 the buzzword, and I I think okay, that's fine. We can do our bit. But when I look out from my bedroom window, I can see one hell of a lot of trees, and uh, I'm I'm also aware that that grass is sequestrating carbon all the time. Sure. It's a difficult
0: one, though. It is a difficult one, isn't it? And it's not one we can get into in too much detail. And they'll, It's an argument that will never end. And maybe it will one day. Who knows? And, and let's just move on. To the, you've, you've, you've done your stint on the television as well. I think you're quite well, well known to people in the, the Welsh TV community. And, and you did your stint as a TV presenter on the, the big country show on HTV. And, right. Yes. Yeah, the, those,
1: those were the days. It was... Uh, it was an interesting challenge, in fact, and um, I suppose I was, I was Adam Henson's sort of lookalike in *Full in- <laughs> He's Actually, he's more my lookalike than I am his lookalike. He's an
0: awful lot younger. You'd say than you're me, better looking than him, obviously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did. I did that sort of job, and I think the way I approached it was that I remember them wanting to write a script for me, and I thought, well, really, if you can't manage without a script you really shouldn't be doing the job and I think listening to how other people what other people's ideas were at that time and being able to perhaps you know raise the next question from what they'd actually said was the attitude that I took it's probably because I'm quite lazy as far as certainly learning scripts or or reading scripts are concerned but I've always felt that you know you've achieved something if, if you've made the person that you're interviewing or, or the person that, that's being f- focused on in it, that they're the star of the show rather than the presenters, which seems to be a bit of the case with, with some of our presenters these days.
0: <laughs> you're not to get me there, are you, Bernard? Because I did try and do this. I'm learning my way through this one. I've been 100 episodes now. You're 100, your episode 101, and, and uh, I'd like to think that I've learned a lot on this job there. But uh, no, I'll let you carry on. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: No, I I I i it, I say it was an enjoyable episode in my life. We again met an awful lot of interesting people, saw a lot of interesting ideas. Uh and I think also again, you know, the media are pretty hard on, on agriculture at the moment. And in a way they they're quite hard on, on the rural community as well, uh, because we're a minority I suppose as much as anything, and certainly they don't I shouldn't really be saying it, but but the BBC seem to to take a certain amount of pleasure in in knocking what's going on in the countryside when, in when you begin to if you started to analyse it in a functional and and in a, an appropriate sort of way that you know we're not really the baddies that that, that some of them make us out to be, sure. and certainly you know thinking that we're going to be the answer to all the climate change problems that that industrial producers have, I think, you know, I do object to that, you know, quite strongly. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, totally agree with you on that, and most of our listeners will agree in as well. As I said, you've yeah, you've you've made a few films and supplied livestock. You mentioned earlier on for films and TV programs, and yeah, that will bring its challenges, wouldn't it? I mean, I can imagine film crews and and, and everything else in there. It's something that uh, that would would stand you in good stead, but dealing with all these, these TV and media would be uh, would be quite an interesting challenge.
1: I think as long as you accept the the, the the idea that most of them will know nothing at all about anything uh, as far as as far as livestock are concerned certainly is perhaps a good place to start and then just take it from there really okay. i think you know we we all if, if you accept the advice of, of a so-called expert you know you you have to be prepared at least to go some way towards what they want if you say that an animal is not going to swim in a in a lake for 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 two hours, well, okay, they accept that sort of thing quite easily. But if you say to them, well, look, if it went in this way, uh, instead of going in that way, it's a more natural thing to do. Uh, they soon learn when it doesn't happen the first time, and then it happens when you, you know, they they have to have a certain amount of confidence in you in the same way that you have to have a certain amount of compi- confidence in them but it was uh, it was it was fascinating met some you know interesting people and 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 uh, did some things that I really wouldn't think about or most people wouldn't think about doing anything but <laughs> it was quite well it was quite well paid so i i coped.
0: It will and and I'm gonna call you the general. You're you're you've been known as a general. You're probably known locally as the general or in certain media media um, areas or anyway, in uh, the video called The Bar Studs and uh, we've all we've all seen that. It was filmed at the at the castle and I think twenty one million views there. Tell us a little bit about the the bar studs.
1: Well, the biggest thing is that I should really have concentrated on how many people are going to view it and been paid on that. That would have made <laughs> far more sense. And it was just an idea that, that a company came here with about putting LED lights on cheap and getting them to do various obscure things. And um, I think, again, it really was about what the limitations were. And all we really did was, was, was got cheap either to stand in straight lines and or stand in circles and they say most of the listeners will know that if you feed them for a winter in a straight line you know it comes an awful lot more naturally to them than than if you, if you just randomly feed them sure. and uh, we utilize that then with a, a little bit of editing shall I say to to produce quite a video uh, that was Watched by an awful lot of people, and I can only
0: exceptional, exceptional, exceptional. Well, I, I think
1: I think people are very easily pleased. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my uh, comment on that, really. But, but it was well, yeah, it, it brought, brought notoriety, I suppose, to you know what she supposedly could do, uh, and it, it it entertained a lot of people, and I think that was you know probably the most important thing of all. And, Although uh... I I did I did turn up at a meeting in the commission and. They decided to show the video there. So this idiot from Wales, who keeps nagging on about various things, also does other things. You know?
0: <laughs> I can imagine They're there in Europe. But it must have brought some some, uh, some visitors to the to the castle as well, and, and hopefully helped you out a little bit and uh, financially on that way. Oh well, yeah,
1: I think anything that you do in publicity terms, whether it be something like that or posing for a poster with you know a pile of sheep in front of the castle, you know. You you never really know what the result of that sort of thing is going to be. And if it is free publicity, which, you know, obviously
0: these things were,
1: you know, it's a lot easier in a way to to quantify, you know, was your time worthwhile or not?
0: (laughs) It's always worthwhile, as you said, unless it's uh, unless it goes against you. But we we've been on time, that had a great chat here, Bernard. And I just go on to one thing: you have something you call a Welsh longhouse, and uh, not quite sure what the Welsh longhouse is, but it's something that uh, that you're quite proud of, I think.
1: Well, I think, yeah, I did talk about buildings that were actually older than the castle, and that it is one of them. It's it's the original farmhouse, and certainly if you go back before about, I think. Uh, the house that I'm in now is, is about 1870, 1880. But before that, um, it was quite common, in actual fact, to live with the cattle and, and well, particularly with the cattle, rather the sheep were always housed. But it's a, a long, narrow building, cattle at one end, people living at the top end. And in fact, the longest that we have, uh, it's in the, the local church record that there were 14 people living in what are basically two rooms uh a, a little loft above, and 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 a, a, a room, a, 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 and then a box bed by the fireplace, where obviously uh the parents that that were, yeah, you know, I should be careful what I say now, but certainly the, the parents that were most significant as far as establishing the family were concerned, they they slept there, and the rest slept where they could. Then, but it it it, it is quite an interesting feature, and it's amazing. We we've sort of made a little bit of a museum, and it, it is amazing the interest. Particularly that Americans have in it. In fact, that I suppose they're, they're sort of coming back to their roots, and, and anything that is related directly to how their families' past lived in, in the past is is quite important to them.
0: Well, uh, Bernard, I think it's so fascinating. You're the first person, the few people I've had on this podcast from Wales, but the first person I think that's owned a castle. And it just just remind us where where our listeners can especially from overseas and where we can find uh, the the Carrick-Henning Castle online and and, and geographically?
1: Well, Carrick-Henning Castle is right in the middle of Carmarthenshire, um, one of the larger counties in South Wales. sa 196 ua is our postcode, if you can get that down, but certainly it is something that is is very well known, particularly in, in, in South Wales as far as castles are concerned. We've got a lot of castles here, but I'd like to think we're, one of the ones that certainly is most romantically and and uh, i suppose location 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 is is is, is what it's about okay and we're, we're always pleased to see people no matter where they come from
0: and bernard i'm sure if you if they turn up there they will they'll get to see you there wandering around there amongst the caves and, and the whole thing sounds uh, very very homely
1: unless i'm wasting my time in some show somewhere or Going to a meeting with that the probably turns out to be totally
0: useless, <laughs> or turning out and and, and looking and making sure that Brussels keeps a, keeps themselves in order for, for for all of us. And Bernard, I really really appreciate your time. It's been fantastic to have you on there and to say what what something with the difference. And and I wish you uh, well with your Longhorns. I I know we bumped into each other at the at the Royal Welsh Show, and and you've had you've won. More success for the Longhorns than probably most of the people in the country. And you maybe played yourself down a little bit there. But uh, as a livestock podcast, uh, you're one of the top Longhorn breeders in the country. And uh, appreciate that.
1: Thank you very much for the, the opportunity to do it.
0: Okay. Well, it's great to speak to you. And, 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 and thank you very much as well. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing it at the Royal wild Show next time, if not before. Absolutely. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales. As always we'd like to thank our sponsors Harbro for their continued support and uh, Harbro also sponsoring a few other uh, shows this winter including Live Scott and having a stand at Agri Scott where hopefully I'll be there along with them maybe doing some live podcast from that event so thanks very much to Harbro Uh, please uh, look them up on the internet or on their their website or on social media and uh, whilst on the subject of social media why not Uh, look up the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find other information to back up this podcast and some great photographs. Thank you.